brought to you by CGTN Europe. Hello, I'm Stephen Cole. Welcome to the Agenda podcast. This episode, we're charging ahead as we look at the rise of the electric car. Many governments and car companies have set themselves ambitious targets to turn their backs on the internal combustion engine. Volvo, for example, says all its vehicles will be electric by 2030. But how realistic is that goal? I spoke to Volvo's chief financial officer, Bjorn Anwal, to find out. We have since a long time said that by 2025, half of our cars should be full electric or half of the sales should be full electric. And now we're complementing that with a hard end date of 2030. And we do that to focus our resources to, for a quick transformation and quick transition, uh, which we believe is the right thing to do. Consumers want it. They expect Volvo to take a lead in planetary safety, as we've always done when it comes to physical safety. And purely from a company strategy point of view, it's the right thing to do. Fully electric premium cars is the fastest part of the auto market, and we want to be a winner in the premium market, so we should focus on the growing part. So. For us, 2030 is uh, is a hard end date, and we aim to make a transition very quickly for where we are today until that point. Well, what would you say, or how would you describe the major challenges to reach that milestone? The number of things that we as a society need to go through in order to get there. First of all, the, there is the affordability of uh, fully electric cars, and primarily the battery cells need to get cheaper, and the technology needs to get better for that to happen, and that will happen with focus and with scale. Then we need charging infrastructure throughout the world for this to work, uh, powered by energy, or energy friend, I was gonna say, fossil-free energy sources. And also there is gonna take some time with getting consumers' behavior to change, getting consumers to understand what the driving pattern is like, how it is to charge your car, where you can do it. There's always a bit of hesitation as you change technologies and and habits. we need to overcome that as well. So I would say affordability, charging infrastructure, and yes, the time it takes for human behavior to adapt. Now that's the big one, isn't it, Bjorn? Getting human behavior to change, because I suspect a lot of motorists are thinking, I'm not gonna buy an electric car now, I'm gonna wait to see if the technology evolves even further. How are you getting over that? There are a number of things we, we need to do. And, and luckily, when it comes to, I mean, affordability, that comes with focus. And that's I mean, one of the reasons why we are saying we're not investing in, in internal combustion energy anymore. We put all the focus to make this affordable. And when it comes to the, the charging infrastructure, there's been a bit of a catch-22. There haven't been enough fully electric cars out there, so then nobody's investing in, in charging infrastructure. And on the other hand, if there is no charging infrastructure, why invest in electric car? Now, luckily, we're breaking out of that conundrum based on the surge in con- consumer demand for fully electric cars. Uh, so we see quickly how the charging infrastructure being invested into. And we also see, which has been our strategy from the get-go, to use plug-in hybrid as a stepping stone into fully electric future. So plug-in hybrid is basically a part-time electric car. Uh, we sell 30 40% of our sales in Europe is with plug-in hybrids. And and those cars are being driven 40% of the time with energies charged from, from electricity. So these cars and these consumers, they're already today getting into the habit of charging every day, be it at home overnight or be it at work during the day. 
so a massive amount of this uh, this habit change is happening stepwise through the plug-in hybrid. And I think many consumers are now ready for the, for the step to go fully electric. Nevertheless, some consumers are still hesitant about, should we say, going green, because they wonder how green the technology really is. We're moving away from an engine to something powered by electricity. How are you persuading consumers that it really is a green revolution? I think, first of all, I think that uh, hesitation is a very sound hesitation because a fully electric car is not a silver bullet into a climate-neutral future. Uh, we need to really think through all of the steps of the chain here, from where you source, source the raw material to the production, the logistics, uh, and in particular when it comes to the battery cells, it's critically important that they are being produced with uh, uh, by producers using uh, fossil-free energy sources. Otherwise, it makes no sense. Uh, and then there are other aspects when it comes to battery cells as well. There's an ethics uh, dilemma where some of the key components, say cobalt, for instance, is being typically sourced from areas which are, let's say, problematic from a social structure perspective. So we need to, as an industry, and that's what we're doing at Volvo, investing heavily in tracking systems to make sure that everything that's being used in those cars are sourced in a socially responsible way. So there is no silver bullet there. And I think what we can do as a producer is to be extremely transparent. What is the carbon footprint over the full life cycle? Uh, what are the different uh, origin of sourcing and how do we make sure we live up to sourcing everything in a socially responsible way? Uh, you, you've put, you've put this your is finger. not a solution for tomorrow. It's a solution for the next decade. And we need to work through many problems. You put your finger on uh, an important uh, point there, Bjorn, about the battery. And people have this vague idea, well, where, does, where are the batteries made? And lithium, what's that? Is that part of the battery? Where does that come from? And how ecologically friendly is lithium and some of the components of a battery? And can you uh, renew it? Or do you have to buy, you know, what happens to the battery once you've used it? Yes. No, and, and those are exactly the questions that we need to have solid answers to. And the, and the short answer is, Everything that gets sourced should be sourced in a socially responsible way. And we at Volvo will never source anything that we can't guarantee is sourced in a socially responsible way. And as, as a system, we need to make sure that those rare earth materials are recycled. So once the battery is uh, used, there has to be very effective recycling processes to, to get those uh, those materials back into producing new batteries. So that circular design and thinking is something that needs to go into this, uh, this revolution at the get-go. We can't think about that in the end. What about your workforce, Bjorn? I mean, the old days of the engineers in the garage, uh, have, they, have they gone away? And these days, you just want people who are computer experts uh, looking under the bonnet. Not just, but there is a big change uh, for Volvo cars. I mean, this whole shift to full electric, uh, full electric future has happened at the same time as the car, as you said, is going from being a mechanical piece to a computer on wheel, where a lot of the consumer value add comes through software. Uh, and at the same time, the whole way a car is getting sold and serviced is going much more into an online uh, setup. So massive amount of change for for an automotive player like Volvo and being relatively small and, and nimble makes for an exciting time but we definitely still need mechanics that take care of the car there are still going to be brakes that need to be repaired and a car is still a physical product that needs a physical form of delivery one of the strengths of your reputation is safety 
Will that continue to be central to uh, the electric car policy going forward? Yes, safety is core DNA in Volvo. It will continue to be a core DNA in Volvo. What we're doing now, and what I think our consumers expect from us, is that we include a broader sense of safety. I mean, planetary safety, sustainability is a, a core safety issue for, for, the, for the time to come. Uh, and we are promising our consumers to live up to the same excellence there as we have always within, within safety. Uh, if you make that a core part of your DNA, uh, and you focus wholeheartedly over, over time, uh, you can drive a lot of change. I think we show that with physical safety and we are determined to also show it with planetary safety. Bjorn Anwal, many thanks for joining us on the agenda. Thank you. Well, we've heard from the car manufacturers about their plans to go all electric by the end of the decade, but can the necessary infrastructure really be in place across the world by then? Here to try and answer that is Yap Berger. Uh, Yap is Senior Advisor at the Regulatory Assistance Project in Brussels. We've heard uh, from many uh, motor manufacturers uh, about their strict deadlines to make their fleets fully electric. But how ready is Europe for the arrival and the deployment of the electric car? We're seeing more and more electric vehicles. And as a customer, that's great. So there's much more to choose from. And they have huge benefits for the driver, but to society as well. So we get cleaner air, but they're also great for the energy system because they can flexibly use energy when overall demand on the grid is low. And there's a lot of renewable energy, like from solar and wind. So what we need to do now is make sure that we have the right framework in place so we can charge these vehicles in a smart way. When you talk about, yeah, the the right framework, this is happening seemingly very quickly, isn't it? And I wonder what kind of framework do we need to set up? It's about preparing our streets and our buildings for this. And we know a lot about mobility. We know where people drive to, and we especially know where our people staying for longer times. And that's great because if a vehicle is parked, you can use that time to flexibly charge it. And we can map that. We know the mobility pattern, so we can map actually the electricity demand and we can start building charging infrastructure and we can start preparing homes and offices for that. We know that COVID has driven many uh, aspects of society uh, faster forward. Some say it's pushed uh, development uh, forward by 10 years. Is that true of uh, electric cars, electric vehicles as well? I think I think so. So we're seeing two uh, transitioning uh, transitions happening uh, at the same time. So one of that, we see changing mobility patterns. So if you look at like at, at cities like Paris, you see more and more people start using bikes to get around the city. Uh, so we're seeing less cars. But on the other hand, we're seeing more need for cleaner air in the city. So people feel the urgency to get a clean car and get clean mobility. And it doesn't have to be a private car. It can be a shared vehicle as well. So we've also seen an increase in car sharing, for instance. And all of this applies to perhaps the richer countries, doesn't it? What about the poorer countries, the more remote areas? Are they going to be left behind? They definitely aren't uh, left behind. So I, I guess... They can learn a lot from front runners like London and Oslo and Amsterdam that I've worked with. And one of the key learnings is that it's 
really helpful to have a demand-driven rollout of charging infrastructure. You don't need to build all the charging stations right now. You can follow the demand and ensure that the right infrastructure is in place at the right moment. And the European Commission is making charging infrastructure a key element of the post-COVID recovery plans. So there's also funding available to help member states with that. And I guess it pays off for them to now start building an essential charging network. So placing chargers in strategic locations so that people can make the switch to electric vehicles. And a market for EV charging will grow from there. Um, you, you talk about arranging the charging of vehicles in cities. We're looking at a redesign, aren't we, almost, of, of streets and also homes uh, in the short term to, so that electric vehicles can be charged more easily. Yeah, definitely. So we've planned buildings in a very traditional way. But if you look at your car now, an electric car, it becomes a flexible energy buffer for your house. It can absorb energy and it can even feed back energy back to the building. So when we're looking at building codes, it's something we need to address. We need to make sure that buildings are ready for EVs and we need to make sure that we can use the flexibility in charging them or maybe even discharging them. So we also need to have smarter buildings. Are you fully supportive of all electric vehicles? And you don't think it's a bit of a con, same as the diesel con uh, came in. And I know Volkswagen have paid billions of dollars in fines because of the, the data, the wrong data they sold. Are you are we absolutely sure that electric vehicles are the way forward? Definitely. So we, we know electric vehicles are much more energy efficient. So we're saving a lot of energy in the process. So even if you would power electric vehicles using coal-fired power plants, we're saving energy. But we know we're also transitioning the energy system to a more sustainable energy system with a lot more of renewable energy. And we can actually use the flexibility in charging EVs for absorbing more of that solar and wind energy. And when it comes to the bare materials needed for electric vehicles, we know that we're able to recycle those materials. So in the end, we'll be needing less raw materials for electric vehicles than we're needing raw materials for fossil fuel cars. Yeah, Berger, Senior Advisor at the Regulatory Assistance Project in Brussels. Many thanks to you for joining us on the agenda. Thanks for having me. So while we may need fewer raw materials for an electric car battery, are enough of them available to meet such a dramatic rise in global demand? And how can we minimize harm to the environment while making those batteries. Let's speak now to Gerard Barron, chairman and CEO of Deep Green. Um, Gerard, most companies are sourcing the materials needed for these batteries on land, but you're scouring the seabed. Why? You know, we believe that we can produce battery metals and massively compress the environmental and social cost by collecting these polymetallic nodules off the ocean floor and converting them into battery metals. And as we know, we're about to enter into a period of enormous increase in metal production because we want to move away from fossil fuels. But to do that, we have to build batteries and billions of them. Are there then uh, not enough resources on land to supply the rising demand for electric vehicle batteries? 
it's not so much that there aren't enough. It's about the environmental cost of them because let's face, uh, say, an electric vehicle battery cathode is mainly nickel uh, heavy. And if we look at where the future supplies of nickel lie, they're in the form of nickel laterites. And of course, they form in wet tropical areas under rainforests. And so that's why we need to look at metal production from a full life cycle analysis. And, you know, we shouldn't be destroying our carbon sinks to get access to these metals. And our studies have shown that we can produce uh, battery cathodes and compress the CO2 emissions by more than 90%, which is an enormous number. And so we need to stop destroying these carbon sinks, which also happen to be some of the most biodiverse areas on our planet. Okay, so you might be helping uh, save the planet uh, on land, but what about underwater? Could, could there be damage because of deep sea mining to, to, to the seas, the ocean and the ocean beds? I'll say there's no perfect solution. There will be some impact. But what we are understanding uh, are those impacts now. And we're also developing plans how we can mitigate those impacts. But Stephen, it's, it's worth going back a step and saying, if we had our time again and look at, took a planetary perspective, we would carry out extractive industries in the parts of the planet where there were the least life. And we wouldn't, we'd go to our deserts, right? We wouldn't go to our tropical rainforests. And that's what we're dealing with in the abyssal zone. It's the biggest desert on the planet. Which part of the world then are you focusing on the most now? Well, the good news is there is one concentrated part of the Pacific Ocean. It's known as the Clarion Clipperton Zone. Today, there's less than 1.2 million square kilometers under exploration licenses. So there's no extraction happening for commercial profit. It's all exploration at the moment. And, you know, if we think about the oceans, they're around 360 million square kilometers in size. So we're talking about less than 0.3 of 1% of our oceans. And so, and there's enough metals in that area to electrify the entire passenger transport fleet two times over. Now, our company, Deep Green, which is soon to be known as the metals company, has uh, control over three license areas. Uh, and we've defined the resource on two of them. And we know that on those two blocks, we have enough battery metals through these nodules to build 280 million electric vehicle batteries. So it's a really large resource. And thankfully, it's very concentrated in one little area. Jared, on land, obviously, you need permission to excavate and mine. Is that true under the water as well? Is, is deep sea mining uh, regulated? Absolutely. It's, it's very regulated by the International Seabed Authority. And so uh, and the International Seabed Authority is made up of 167 member states plus the European Union. And so while we control three license areas through our sponsoring states, uh, we also have the company of China who have two license areas and Japan and Korea and Singapore and the United Kingdom and, and some European countries. So we're keeping good company out there, Stephen. Countries are setting their own deadlines to go fully electric, some as soon mm. as 2025. That's 
just four years away. Do you feel perhaps mm. sometimes they're rushing into things without thinking through the full consequences of going electric? Well, I think that only now are people really starting to focus on the full life cycle analysis of the supply chain. You know, I think previously they've thought, well, we can push that problem off to other people. We can push that off to the battery makers. And we've all seen images of child labor in the Congo, and we find that very upsetting. But of course, what the, the biggest challenge that the planet faces at the moment is climate change. And of course, climate change is also the biggest threat to the oceans. And that's called rising, rising temperatures. And so we need to cut our emissions. And so if we can you know, cut these emissions by more than 90% by making batteries out of these than land-based, that's a good thing. But only now are people getting focused. And so when you add up the commitments coming out of all of the automakers supported by legislation, by governments, then the, the numbers don't add up, Stephen. We need to identify a new supply of these important battery metals. So, you know, we're going to be playing a bit of catch up here with regards to supply because, you know, we, we've all uh, now understand the externalities that have come from fossil fuels. But, you know, people haven't given the same scrutiny to the production of metals. But that's about to change. Have they given the same scrutiny to what will happen to the batteries uh, after their life is up, um, can they be recycled in future? Well, good question. And, and our commitment, you know, we believe that extractive industries have to stop. We're moving to a time when the, the circular economy is becoming real. And so the good news about an electric vehicle battery is that they are 99 point something percent recyclable. So once these metals go into the system, they're going to stay there. And, and I think that's something to give us all hope. And I don't expect in the case of the metals company or Deep Green, we're going to be collecting these in 40 years' time. I hope that we've injected enough battery metals into the system that we're going to be recycling over and over and again because, you know, nickel can be recycled 100 times. And so... I think we're moving to that circular economy. And so we, we can all take stock in that. What we need to make sure we don't do, though, is destroy our planet as we're finding that supply of these important battery metals. And that's where metals from polymetallic nodules come into it. All right, we'll leave it there. Gerard Barron, Chairman and CEO of Deep Green. Many thanks for joining us on the agenda. Been a pleasure, Stephen. That brings us to the end of another edition of the Agenda podcast. We're taking a break next week, but we'll be back in two weeks' time to look at how the tourism industry might cope with a second summer ravaged by the COVID-19 pandemic. Remember, you can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher and Spotify. You can also find us on CGTN Europe Facebook, Twitter, Instagram and YouTube. And we'd love it if you could leave us a rating and a review. Until next time, goodbye.
the most interesting questions. Are there other living beings beyond Earth? Will man or machine be in charge? Great question. Always have more than one answer. Well, hold on, uh, let me just draw up a list. And always come from more than one person. That's where the credibility lies. The concept of having a machinery which is alive and evolving didn't wait for us. The end of inequality of incomes and wealth around the world, can you imagine how difficult that is at the moment to achieve? Every episode, Stephen Cole, Murray Beveridge, and some of the brightest minds out there shed light on the answers to some of the most intriguing questions. There are two ways of looking at this. Machines can't really discriminate between civilian and military targets. The Answers Project. Maybe we need to just look at this in a bit more detail. Extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. The Answers Project, a new podcast from CGTN Europe.